Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, January 11th, 2022. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film news writer BJ Colangelo. Hi, hello. BJ, welcome to the podcast. This is your first time. Uh, so for people who have not heard your lovely voice before, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe the, the kind of things that you're interested in covering or, or type of writing that you really like to do at Slash Film. Uh, just tell folks a little bit about you. Sure thing. So I kind of cut my teeth in the film world, focusing specifically on horror films. Um, I always tell people that if you can think of a publication that you really love that talks about horror, I've written for them at some point in my life. So horror is definitely the bread and butter, but I like to think of myself as a champion for dismissed cinema. I have a particular fondness for the subgenres of film that a lot of people like to kind of put their nose down at horror definitely being one of them, but also mm. things like musicals, um, animation. I am a humongous defender of teen cinema um, in, in a very, very big way. Um, <laughs> so anything that somebody at some point may have like mocked you for liking, um, that's more than likely something that I'm going to be into. And I, I love to find all of those weird, quirky tidbits that uh, end up in like the lost void of IMDb trivia. Uh, the, that's that's kind of my bread and butter. That is awesome. I love that. Uh, well, yes, you, I mean, for the listeners out there, if you're not reading SlashFilm.com every day, and you certainly should be, uh, BJ's name is one that you'll see a lot there, and she's been doing great, great work. So uh, definitely check out her byline over at SlashFilm. Um, okay, let's jump into the news. There's been, mm -hmm. it's been a, a relatively quiet start to 2022, but since we haven't done like a, a full on news episode in a while, there's a few things that have popped up recently that I thought might be fun to talk about. So, well, I don't know about fun being the right word for all of these, <laughs> but, uh, let's, let's start off by talking about Pixar's latest decision, which is their new movie turning red is going to be released directly on Disney plus BJ. What do we know about this? So I have so many complicated and conflicting feelings about this decision, because on the practical side, 
I am thinking this is this is the right decision. We are still in a pandemic. Miss Omicron is still throwing a tantrum. <laughs> it's not super safe to be going into the theater, especially for a film that is a family film, an animated film, a film that is uh, about a, it's a coming of age story. So children are going to be the target audience, and a lot of children do not have the accessibility for vaccinations. I am very uncomfortable on a very moral level thinking about children going into a theater right now. But at the same time, I'm also very conflicted because Turning Red is such a groundbreaking piece for Pixar. This is one of the first stories that has a teen girl protagonist for them. This is also a yet another film for them that is focused on a character that is from a marginalized identity because the character is a Chinese Canadian girl. And it is so frustrating that it feels like they're not prioritizing this new diverse slate of films that they have going on. But then at the same time, uh, we just saw that Encanto was dropped on Disney Plus after a shortened theatrical run. Mm -hmm. And I firmly believe that its accessibility on Disney Plus is why that soundtrack is now the number one selling album in the country right now, because so many people are able to see it that otherwise probably wouldn't have because of the theatrical restriction. So it's, it's frustrating. I understand the mindset behind it. It's disappointing. And ultimately, I just feel like it's an unfortunate circumstance of the world that we're currently existing in. Yeah, I'm, I, I think uh, Ryan Scott, who's been on the podcast before, is, is cooking up an article right now, um, or at least has been talking about the idea of writing an article about like how uh, Disney seems to be sort of um, fumbling the brand when it comes to Pixar, because you've got movies like Soul and Luca that went straight to uh, the Disney Plus platform, and the, after each of those announcements, and now after the announcement about Turning Red going straight to Disney Plus, there have been uh, a wave of articles about how like the employees at at Pixar are sort of like blindsided and like just sitting there with their jaws on the floor, like really all of this work that we've done, and now it's just being sort of quote unquote dumped on this streaming platform. And so, yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. Like I personally, I'm I'm based in Florida right now, and I'm not like. Uh, I'm certainly not going to movie theaters right now on, a, <laughs> on any sort of regular basis. I snuck into one uh, 8 p.m. screening of The Last Duel like several months ago where there was literally nobody else in the theater. But other than that, I haven't really been back. So I, I share uh, all of your sentiments and, and frustrations there. Um, and and uh, my heart goes out to the people who work at Pixar who've spent years of their lives like mm -hmm. working on this movie thinking that they're going to have the um, you know, the, the privilege of seeing their work displayed on the big screen and getting like the the full treatment uh, for a, a project that they poured their heart and souls into um, for it to be, yeah, just, uh, I don't know, uh, as a culture, I think we're still going to, we're still in the process of contending with like uh, categorizing movies in this like dumped to streaming versus like, what is a quote unquote real movie? What isn't, you right, know, the, right. these definitions are changing so often um, right now. But uh, yeah, I, I feel for these people for, for sure. So uh, I do too. And it's, it's really just timing because we had, you know, Pixar's really trying to have this initiative to bring in more diverse storytelling to the films that they're putting out. And it just happens to also coincide with a pandemic and yeah. no one could have predicted that. And it is such an unfortunate difficulty and deep down, I wish that they would have prioritized a theatrical release and they would have held off on it. Mm -hmm. I know that people don't want to keep pushing their movies. I know that that's hard, but I think that this is a movie that 
genuinely does deserve the big treatment because, you know, in addition to its, you know, wonderful storytelling, this is also Pixar's first movie where women are in charge, where they're behind every single leadership role. So for it to be like, yeah, sorry about your theatrical, you're not yeah. going to get to see an all female <laughs> roster on, on the credits when it rolls like, oh, that like just guts me on like a very visceral level. Yeah, terrible, terrible timing there. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm going to link to a couple things in the show notes. Uh, Deshaun Thomas wrote an article for us called Why Does Disney Still Lack Faith in Diverse Animated Movies that I think is really good and worth reading. And then um, Turning Red actually made it onto the editorial staff's collective like group list for the most anticipated movies of 2022. So I'll drop that in there as well. We did um, a big podcast about that. So regular listeners might remember us talking about that a couple weeks ago, but the, the full uh, group ranking of that just was released on the site yesterday, I think. So, uh, all right, let's move on to our next topic here, which is Final Destination 6. There is a reboot of the Final Destination franchise in the works, and we don't really know much about the story, but we know that John Watts, who is the director of Marvel and Sony Spider-Man trilogy is on board as a producer. He cooked up the story idea for this. And uh, BJ, as somebody who just mentioned at the top of our conversation here that you're a big horror fan, I have to imagine they have some thoughts about the Final Destination franchise. What do you think about uh, this coming back? And what do you think about John Watts being involved here? So first things first, back when Slash Film did our little horror bracket of the franchises, I was tasked with defending Final Destination against uh, the eventual winner of Aliens in the first round, which was cruelty if oh, i yeah. if i can be so frank <laughs> um but the final destination franchise is actually like my horror franchise is the way i like to view it because i am a millennial i'm only 30 which means a lot of the the big horror franchises i had to be introduced to by like my mom whereas final destination was the one that i found on my own so i, I am very precious about the mm -hmm. final destination franchise i love them so very much my absolute dream is to like write a Final Destination style kill scene like uh, I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> I'm so glad that we are continuing to make Final Destination movies because they are such evergreen stories because everyone's afraid of dying. At least I would hope everyone is afraid of dying. <laughs> um, and it's a way to have these very creative Rube Goldberg style kills that don't have the same sort of like mean-spirited tinge of the torture porn era of things mm -hmm. like Hostel and Saw. So you can have these fun and really experimental kills without it feeling like kind of icky afterwards. Yeah, there's um, a little bit of a weightlessness too, right? Like to, yeah. to the Final Destination stuff. I mean, it, it deals with some serious things, but it's not necessarily like uh, like doom and gloom in the way that some horror movies can feel like uh, like you feel bogged down as a viewer. These movies, it's almost like the fun is watching how creative the kills are going to be. Exactly. Like you, you come for that. Like when you're watching a final destination movie, like sure I can sit and wax poetically about Devin Sawa's Alex Browning and the survivor's guilt aspect of it all. Like that's mm -hmm, obviously mm -hmm. there, but ultimately like, you know what you're getting into when you watch these movies. So I'm glad that they're bringing it back. And I find it fascinating that Watts is being uh, like brought onto the, the producing side of things, because obviously, we know that he knows how to make intricate storytelling make sense um, and make it fun. And that is always the, the, the most fun aspect of Final Destination is how they all fit together in this world and how they all intertwine, how these characters cross paths with characters from other movies, how they cross paths with each other within the confines of the movie, how their deaths are triggering each other. That's really fun. And that's an exciting puzzle. And I think that he's someone 
who knows how to make that happen? Yeah, it's it's kind of confusing because like at one point in the story, it's referred to as a reboot, but a, a reboot, but it's also called Final Destination Six. So I, I'm curious about like the connective tissue there, like how how close you know are we going to see Devin Sawa come back in some form? Are we going to see some of these other characters that have populated the franchise before? Um, those are are sort of open questions at this point. But um, we do know. I mean, uh, we were just talking about this with the the uh, Turning Red situation, but this is going to debut directly on HBO Max. So mm-hmm. um, you know. Uh, the, the same uh, sort of confusion and rules apply in terms of like uh, whether or not this just drops into a sea of content and just instantly disappears. I, I certainly hope not. Um, but uh, I guess you always run that risk, um, you know, releasing something directly into the world of streaming right now. So, uh, all right. So that's going to be on HBO Max. Uh, let's talk about a show that was on HBO and, and I think is currently available to stream on HBO Max, which mm-hmm. is called The White Lotus. And season two is ramping up and they recently added another cast member to its cast. Tell me who was recently added to The White Lotus season two. Oh my God. When when you get news that feels so specifically pointed at your interests, you can't help but feel like this is karma points coming back to you. <laughs> Aubrey Plaza is going to be on The White Lotus season two. And we also know that Michael Imperioli is going to be on it. Uh, there's rumors that Jennifer Coolidge is coming back. So just those three names alone, this is one of my most anticipated, uh, you know, new seasons um it's also interesting because this is sort of becoming an anthology series in in a sense because it's taking place at a different uh resort under the white lotus sort of umbrella and mm-hmm. uh, so we have new characters um but still kind of a, a similar scenario of a lot of <laughs> rich people problems um as someone who has never been wealthy in my life i love watching rich people make their own lives miserable uh it <laughs> gives me a weird sense of power but aubrey plaza is quite possibly the most like perfect person to be in this because she just has that sardonic and deadpan humor that works really well for me and i feel like she's going to be a great energy surrounded by a bunch of people who obviously have their own heads up their ass um it's going to be fantastic yeah i really really enjoyed the first season of the white lotus and i agree with you i think she has like that you know you don't cast aubrey plaza necessarily to do uh how do I put this? You cast her to do what she's really good at. And and she is good at this very, very specific type of, uh, of performance, this sort of like um, the April Bloodgate thing from Parks and Rec. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is that she, she spent years like sort of crafting and honing this persona and she can do other things, but she's so, so good at that one specific thing. And I feel like when you find a lane as a performer that nobody else is really in, you just got to like ride in that lane and just cash those checks as long as possible. Like I, I, I do not uh, hold it against Aubrey Plaza whatsoever. If this just feels like exactly what you think it's going to, when she steps into the world of the white Lotus, I think like that's exciting. Actually. It's just like the idea of, of her bringing her, her uh, special Aubrey Plaza magic uh, directly into that world. So um, we know that she's going to be playing a character named Harper Spiller, a woman on vacation with her husband and his friends uh, you've cooked up in the article, the, the news article, some uh, scenarios that you hope that, that she pops up in in this season two. I won't spoil those for people. I'll link to your <laughs> article in the show notes, but I encourage people to read those because they're very fun. So uh, yes, White Lotus, the first season was great and I'm definitely looking forward to, uh, to season two here. Um, all right, next up on our list, uh, Wes Anderson is making a new movie. He's returning to the world of Roald Dahl. He directed um, 
God, what was the name of the uh, the stop motion? Fantastic uh, Mr. Fox. Yes, thank you. The Fantastic Mr. Fox. That was a, a based on a Roald Dahl uh, book. That was his stop motion animated comedy from several years ago now. And now he is making a movie called The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar and Six More, which is based on another Roald Dahl book. Uh, I grew up reading this book. I have not read it in probably 20 years at this point, but I remember really, really loving this. Um, it kind of has that perfect... Wes Anderson format, like the structure built right into it because it's a series of unconnected stories. Um, and I just watched the French dispatch not too long ago. And that sort of also feels very much like a kind of like an anthology in what, you know, wrapped up in one package. Um, and he's really, really good at, uh, at creating, you know, perfect wrapping paper and then styling for <laughs> those sort of packages. But um, do you have any familiarity with this book? Did you ever read this book growing up or anything? I did. Uh, I was a big Roald Dahl kid growing up, uh, read pretty much everything that he wrote. And I'm glad that you brought up the French Dispatch because that was my first thought as well when they made the announcement. I was like, well, we already know that he knows how to handle Roald Dahl's material. He successfully did so with Fantastic Mr. Fox and was able to kind of incorporate his own Wes Anderson-isms into it. And it's a, such a wonderful piece of art. It is my favorite Wes Anderson movie um, because I love everything about it so much. <laughs> Um, but with the French Dispatch and now with the wonderful story of Henry Sugar and Six More, I think this fits really nicely into his into his wheelhouse. And this particular story of Roald Dolls is one that does lean a little bit for an older audience. Um, I wouldn't say that like it's inaccessible for children, but it is also a bit more mature compared to something like, I don't know, James and the Giant Peach or, or yeah. Willy, yeah, Willy yeah. Wonka. Um, so I think that this is going to be a really interesting adventure for Wes Anderson to make something that I feel will probably be in the same maturity level of something like Isle of Dogs, um, where it is serious, but at the same time, um, it can be enjoyed by a wide range of of ages. Yeah, definitely. And this is going to be made for Netflix. Um, Netflix acquired the rights to Roald Dahl's entire uh, library category, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, his, his entire, um, why, why am I blanking on the title? I want to say discography, but that's for musicians. What is the, uh, what is <laughs> like the word? Bibliogra for... yeah, 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 bi yeah, bibliography. That's exactly right. Um, yeah. So uh, this is going to be one of their first sort of big projects in the, the Roald Dahl world. I wonder if they're going to try to create a Roald Dahl cinematic universe where all these things are uh, connected. Maybe some performers pop over uh, in between projects. But speaking of performers, um, we know that Benedict Cumberbatch is going to be in this movie, um, which I think this is his first time working with Wes Anderson, unless he was did a voice for Isle of Dogs, which is possible because I didn't see that movie. But um, Ben Kingsley is in this. Ray Fiennes is in this as well. Uh, so yeah. It's, oh, and Dev Patel also. How could I forget? Yeah, so. that's one of his newer ones. And it's so exciting because I think all too often when we think about stories that are kind of based on children's media, they aren't given the seriousness uh, that they deserve. And right off the bat, it's like you have one of the most like beloved and acclaimed directors in history. And then a cast of people that everybody is like, there's no no names here. Like these are all very, very impressive people that mm -hmm. are at like the top of their craft. And they are being brought in to tell the story of something that is essentially like for children. It's also the Paddington movies are so good. <laughs> Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I remember reading a little while ago that Cumberbatch is 
supposed to, I guess this is a rumor, maybe not like fully confirmed, but that the idea is that he's going to be playing multiple characters in this. I'm obsessed so, with that idea. That's great. Yeah, that's really cool. And and the one story that really sticks out to me in, in my memory from childhood in this book is called, I don't remember the exact title of it because like each uh, chapter sort of has a title. Let me look it up real quick on Wikipedia here. It's called uh, The Hitchhiker. And it's like the this sort of um, yeah, like within this anthology format, it's about this guy who picks up a hitchhiker on the road and uh, they get pulled over by the cops and the police officer like writes him a ticket and uh, gets like really angry with him about speeding. And then the the, the cop uh, drives away and leaves and the, the driver is like freaking out and then realizes that this hitchhiker that he just picked up is actually a pickpocket. And the hitchhiker has been sort of like... Uh, you know, just like taking the guy's own belt off of him while he was driving the car, and like <laughs> his his uh, watch and like all these different things. And the guy's sort of like blown away. And then it's revealed at the end of the story that the um, the pickpocket actually stole the uh, police officer's notebook where he wrote down like the ticket and all the, the uh, information about the guy. So there's no way that the, the driver is going to get in trouble. Um, and the I remember the um, the hitchhiker being described as like this rat-like guy with long white fingers and i'm kind of like benedict cumberbatch sort of fits that bill <laughs> like he would be really good as the <laughs> the uh sort of weird creepy um hitchhiker figure in that sub story if they decide to uh to include that in the adaptation so um all right uh, let's see what else do we have to talk about today uh i guess just one more story and that is a remake of the raid is coming to netflix uh pj tell me about this one. Oh my god it depends on my mood, how I feel about this. And by that, I mean, there's just a differing level of I'm either annoyed or I want to like burn a building down. <laughs> so the the original Raid, uh, Gareth Evans' The Raid and also The Raid 2, are two of my favorite films of all time. They are just immaculate works of art. They are masterclasses in the way that we show like hand hand to hand combat like it's unbelievable what's going on and they've been trying to americanize and remake the raid like since it debuted like it came out and everyone's like this is the new hotness we need to get on this how can we make this americanized and i really have a distaste for the constant need to Americanize movies. Like, for the love of God, just read a subtitle. Like, it, the world will not explode, I promise you. <laughs> so I knew it was inevitably coming. But the irritation that I have is that unlike the Train to Busan remake, which I know a lot of people are super passionate about, that film brought on Tima Giganto, who is like unbelievable, incredible, talented, not American, not white director. So a lot of those worries people have of it being like whitewashed, like that kind of goes away. And also Timo's just kind of the man. But the Raid remake is first off being produced by Michael Bay. And I I know there are people who really love his work and he makes really fun, big, explosive-y popcorn movies. I, I get it, but that's not what the Raid is. So that's already like concerning. And then it's being directed by Patrick Hughes, who I I don't know about you. I actively kind of hate the <laughs> Hitman's Bodyguard and Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard uh, films because they just are not fun. They're really tedious. They feel like paint by numbers action movies. And I know that's something some people really love. But the raid is like is art like it is art that is violence 
And I don't know if this is the right team to to take this. I ugh, I'm not thrilled. I'm yeah. real not thrilled. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. I'm I'm looking at uh, Patrick Hughes' filmography, and he directed a movie called Red Hill in 2010 that I think a lot of people, well, maybe not a lot of people, I think it was respected in some corners enough, certainly for Sylvester Stallone to handpick him to direct The Expendables three in 2014. Mm-hmm. But I don't think The Expendables three is is necessarily a well loved a well loved movie in that. I mean, uh, it's franchise. fun, but a lot of the fun and fondness that we have for movies like The Expendables is just because. Oh my God, look at all these people that I loved when I was a kid, now old and blowing shit up. That's fun. Yeah, yeah. And I think like, you know, those movies have their moments. Like Jean-Claude Van Damme as the villain in, I think it's the second one. Like he actually seems like he's having fun and sort of like playing with his persona in a a way that feels a little bit more self-aware than somebody like Stallone is, even within this franchise that Stallone helped sort of cook up. Um, But then, yeah, you mentioned the Hitman's Bodyguard and the Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, which is what the only two movies that he's directed after Expendables 3 and I didn't even bother seeing either of those movies because the trailers just like turned me off so much to them I I feel like that's like the worst it's like giving into the worst impulses of Ryan Reynolds who you know we talked about on this podcast a lot as like somebody who you know seems like charismatic and really good in certain situations but he's also one of those guys kind of like Dwayne Johnson who he co-starred with in uh, in that Netflix movie last year, Red Notice, where like they're just leaning so hard on their persona and it's just becoming a little grating. Um, it feels mm-hmm. like, yeah, Hitman's Bodyguard is like the worst of, of it, all of those. Impulses. It definitely is. Um, I, I got to write the announcement of the Raid remake coming. And I think, I think the, the quote that I used was like, how can you, if you like, it's criminal to take a movie that has Samuel Jackson, Selma Hayek and Ryan Reynolds and it not be, a total banger like how do you mess that up <laughs> yeah uh, yeah so th- this new version of the raid that's coming to netflix i don't know if we said that it's, it's gonna be a netflix movie mm-hmm. um this version is going to explore philadelphia's drug infested badlands area where an elite undercover dea task force will have to push through a slew of cartel informants to take down a kingpin so that's like kind of like the main you know the the synopsis of the original raid kind mm-hmm. of different i hope for this movie's sake, for audience's sake, that it actually feels that it goes so far away from the original uh, uh, basically premise and, and setup that it sort of carves out its own identity. Because I think putting anything up against Gareth Evans' original or The Raid 2 is just going to lead to uh, a really unfair comparison or just like a, a sad comparison to whatever tries to uh, to stack up next to that, you know? So hopefully- oh, I, I agree completely. And I'm just, I'm so worried about the stylistic choices that are going to be made because there's so much precision in Gareth Evans's like style, like his style and in the, in the fight techniques, like it's yeah. so precision. And just based on the premise of it's going to be in the Badlands, it's going to be like the DEA, I, the, the bells went off immediately of like, I'm already feeling like this is going to have some weird racial tones that I'm not going to be thrilled with. Mm. And I'm also going to feel like this is going to be some like pro cop, like got to get out all of these like criminals out of our area, like nonsense Mm. and uh, not excited about it at all. I feel like it's going to lose a lot of the nuance that exists uh, in, in the raid. Yeah. I'm, I mean the, the, uh, those things I think that you're talking about, they kind of feel like Michael Bay-ish to me. And Michael yes. Bay is just producing this. And so like Michael Bay produced uh, A Quiet Place, if I remember right. I, I think. I'm, I'm pretty I sure think you're right. That. I think you're right. Um, and I didn't really feel 
Faye's hand or influence in that movie in any way. Um, because this is an action movie, I feel like, uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe that connection will be a little bit more pronounced. Will he be um, able to like hold himself back is the question yeah, that I yeah, have for him exactly right. producing an action film. Yeah. Um, Man, I, I just like, you know, I, I, I certainly don't wish ill will on uh, on a project that I haven't seen yet. And I know that, you know, it's very possible that, like I said, this carves out its own thing and, and sort of feels like uh, not a pale imitation, but like an interesting side project that is like, you know, this its own take on this kind of um, uh, sort of uh, like almost video game concept of like fight your way to the top of a building kind of thing, which is what mm-hmm. was so great about the original The Raid. Um but uh, but yeah, I think it's fair to have some questions at this stage. So we'll see what the casting Absolutely. looks like. Maybe, you know, if they cast a particularly charismatic person or a particularly physical person in the lead role, that might tell us a little bit about the like the, the martial arts style. Uh, hopefully there's going to be some martial arts on display here and it's not just going to be pure gun porn like you sort of hinted at. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think there's room for this movie to be okay, maybe even good. Uh, I just don't have particularly high hopes for it based on Patrick Hughes' uh, previous movies and uh, and Bay's involvement at this stage. But, um, you know, we'll, Absolutely. we'll keep an eye on it. I so. love to be shocked. I love to be thoroughly surprised. I love going into something expecting the worst and coming out being like, huh, you know what? They, they really exceeded those expectations that I had. And I will be the first to eat crow if this turns out to be great. And the thing is, I hope I hope that it is. I never yeah. want a movie to be bad. I I've never want to see a movie fail. But I've got the hesitancy. I'm a little on edge. And I think that that's justified. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. All right. Well, I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode. BJ, it was great having you on. Congratulations on your first appearance. I mean, such Thanks. a congratulations. That's a weird <laughs> thing to say. Uh, but thank you for, for coming on um, for your first time. Uh, maybe tell people like where they can find you on social media or anything that you're working on or if you have any other like podcasts that you want to plug or anything like that. Yeah, sure. So obviously I'm over at Slash Film. Um, you can find my work there. If there is something that seems like a very weird shit posty headline about Star Wars, it's probably me. Um, but <laughs> I'm over there. Um, you can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at BJ Colangelo. And I also co-host the podcast This Ends at Prom with my wife, Harmony. Uh, my wife is transgender. So we are going through all of the the seminal teen girl movies of my youth and we embrace them we analyze them and uh, it comes from my place of having extreme nostalgia her place of all of these movies you know being completely missed by her due to her socialization as she was growing up but we look at the cultural relevancy the historical impact and what it says about society uh, looking at a genre of movies that everybody likes to pretend don't matter Wow, that's a really cool concept. What was the like the most recent one that you covered? So we actually just covered Not Another Teen Movie because uh, my wife has finally seen all of the movies that the movie is parroting. Okay. Um, so we we go into that and wow, that movie like hates teen girl movies. It's a parody movie that hates the thing that it's parroting, which is very frustrating. Um, but this week we will be doing an episode on Scream, uh, the original Scream, and uh, that's really exciting. And the week after that, we'll be talking about Bo Burnham's Eighth Grade. Awesome. All right, cool. So yeah, check that out. I'll drop a link to that in the show notes as well. So people can find that there. And yeah, you can find more about the stories that we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. Slashfilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. 
You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. That would really help us out a lot. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you all so much for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.